This is the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care podcast. You can find more information and additional podcast episodes at professionalpalliativehub.com. Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care podcast. This is a series of podcasts we have produced for Palliative Care Week. We have specifically chosen a number of topics related to palliative care and we hope to share important information that will help you to understand palliative care better and answer some questions that you may have. The podcast will be divided into chapters, so if you want to revisit any particular question, you can do so without listening to the entire podcast again. So welcome to all our listeners. My name is Yvonne McCahill and today I am joined by Dr. Regina McQuillan, Palliative Medicine Consultant at St. Francis Hospice and Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. And today we are going to talk about the use of opioids in palliative care. So Regina, welcome. Firstly, can I ask you why you thought this was a particularly important topic to cover? I think this is an important topic because opioids are very useful drugs. They are very often used in palliative care when people are living with life-limiting illness. But they're also drugs which despite being very useful, have side effects, and but they also cause a lot of concern for patients and families. So I wanted to be able to talk about the drugs, why you might use them, but also then how you take account of potential problems and how we address the potential problems. When we talk about opioid medications, I suppose some people might be familiar, but for those who aren't, I suppose, what are some of the more commonly used ones? So probably the commonly used one is one called morphine. And sometimes when that's used in uh, for patients, you can have MST as tablets or Severidol tablets or Oromorph liquid. So people might know it in these different formulations. And morphine can also be given by injection. Another drug is called OxyContin. And it comes as a slow-release tablet, which is OxyContin or a more immediate release tablet or liquid called oxynome. There are also drugs which are given as a patch on the skin, and they will be ones called fentanyl or buprenorphine. And then another one which isn't used so often is one called paladone. So those are the five more commonly used opioid drugs in palliative care. So we know that these particular medications are commonly used for pain uh, for people with cancer, but what other conditions might they be used for? So as you say, they are used for people who've got pain associated with cancer. And they would not necessarily be the first line drug, but if people have severe pain or pain which is not responding to more basic painkillers, you would then use an opioid type drug. If you have pain from other reasons, such as pain from arthritis or back pain, opioids can help but they may not have such a great effect as they would have in a cancer pain setting. So in people with cancer pain, you may inc- it's usually possible to keep increasing the dose of the drugs and get people pain-free. But in a non-cancer pain, you may not be able to get people pain-free in the same way with opioids only, and you might need to use other drugs alongside the opioids. The other thing opioids are used for, which people don't tend to know so much about, is for breathing problems. So people who are very short of breath with a serious illness, 
the first thing doctors always try and do and see can they reverse anything to improve your lung function. But opioids such as morphine can reduce the sensation of being breathless. And then the last thing they tend to be used for is when people have a very bad cough. So sometimes people would use codeine for a cough. And codeine is in the opioid family, but it's a weak opioid. So you might use codeine or morphine for a cough. In palliative care, we try and see, can you fix what's causing the problem? And if you can't fix what's causing the problem, you then try and use drugs to treat the symptom. That's very interesting, actually, Regina, just to bring out, you know, that sometimes they are used for symptoms where, you know, there might be breathlessness, as you said, and other symptoms. So how do people commonly take these medications? When they're talking about the different drugs earlier about, say, MST and OxyContin, so some of these, most of these tablets are available, but you can take them by mouth. So there might be a tablet form or a liquid medication. If people are on this medication, a prescription is provided by either a hospital doctor or when they're at home by their GP. When the doctors are prescribing it and also when people are collecting the medication from the chemist, the doctor, the chemist, their nurse will talk to them about how to take the medication. So you normally take this medication as a tablet form. The slow-release tablets, you usually take them twice a day. The quick-release ones, you may take them up to four times a day if need be. There are also then the medication which come as a patch form. So the patches, again, it's a prescription from a GP, from a hospital doctor. And also then you need to have education about those because the education is, depending on which the patch is, it's put on the skin, it's changed every three days or every week, depending on what the drug is. So these are things that very often patients can manage this themselves, but they need to make sure that you're getting the appropriate education from, I say, their doctor, their nurse, or their chemist. Sometimes people are unwell and they might need the support of their family, you know, to have advice about what the medication is. So just to come on to the use of syringe drivers or pumps, as I think uh, they are sometimes called, when might they be introduced? So I think our preference always is to be able to give medication by mouth. Because it makes things straightforward. It means people can manage this themselves with their family. You don't need additional expertise. You may have patients, though, or maybe at times when people, say, have a lot of nausea and vomiting, they may then have difficulty in taking their painkillers by mouth because there's so much vomiting. You may have people who are very weak, very tired. They may have difficulty swallowing medication. In situations like that, you then look to see, should you give the medication as an infusion, using a syringe driver or pump, give this infusion under the skin. So the syringe drivers are used if if people can't reliably take the medication by mouth as a way of giving their pain relief. Sometimes people will have this as a temporary measure if, say, if they have a lot of nausea or vomiting. They may be temporarily on a syringe driver, both with drugs for the sickness and then drugs for the pain relief. And once the nausea and vomiting is settled down, they can go back onto tablets by mouth. Or maybe when people are very weak and very ill and they may not be able to go back onto tablets by mouth and then they will stay on a medication in a syringe driver. If somebody is on tablets by mouth and they need to go onto medication in a syringe driver, you just work out the equivalent doses. So going on a syringe driver is not an increase in the drugs. It's not more effective drugs. It's just a way of giving drugs if you can't take the drugs by mouth. 
That's a question I think, Regina, that a lot of people have, um, is that when we think of syringe drivers being introduced, often we think it's at very late stage, you know, of that end of life phase. I think sometimes people talk about it, they say he was fine and then he was put on the pump and then he died. But sometimes what's happening is somebody is very weak and you notice that they're very weak a sign that their health is deteriorating in a very serious way is that they can't swallow the medication. So they're deteriorating and maybe coming close to death and they can't swallow the medication. They give start on the syringe driver because they're deteriorating and getting close to death rather than the syringe driver causing death. It is true that sometimes when people are coming closer to dying, they need a syringe driver. But I think it's not that the syringe driver causes them to die because they're coming close to dying, it's the way to make sure they're getting the pain relief and other medication to maintain that comfort. Yeah, that it could be that, you know, there there's problems with swallowing and are, as you said, nausea and they're just unable to take it orally. Because of the strength of these medications and, uh, you know, common side effects that they cause uh, Regina sometimes you know there is some hesitance and concern around uh, taking them so we might just talk a little bit about some of those concerns one of the them might be that people are afraid they'll become addicted or dependent and I suppose as we know we've heard so much about Oxycontin and that huge problem in America and um, so what would you say in practice? I think when I started off, I said these are very good drugs, but they have their problems. And I think what's really important in this situation is that you have clear understanding from the doctors, the nurses, the chemists about why this person's on this drug. And I suppose making sure that the drug is the right drug for them and suiting them. So there has been problems in other parts of the world where maybe drugs are prescribed when they aren't necessary or rapidly increasing doses without very great clarity of why that's required. It is extremely rare to become addicted to medication in a cancer pain setting when there's a good management and oversight of why the, the, of the drugs. So it's very, very rare. Saying that, if somebody is on a strong opioid such as morphine, it's not a good idea to stop it suddenly because you can then feel very unwell. But if somebody ha has cancer and they get some specific treatment for cancer pain, such as radiotherapy, it may be possible to reduce the morphine. But that needs to be a planned reduction of morphine rather than suddenly stopping it. But I think the concerns about addiction, they are very real. And I think there has been experience in other countries about addiction. And I think that's why it's really important that if you're, you or a member of your family are being recommended to take a strong opioid, you're much better to say to your doctor, to your nurse, I'm worried about this because, because then people will understand what your worries are and then be able to hopefully give you reassurance around it. But addiction is very rare in a cancer pain setting and I, that shouldn't be a reason why people don't take the drugs. And again, I think it's just so important to highlight that with our listeners that, you know, if there is a concern, always talk to your healthcare, your doctor, your nurse or other healthcare provider 
and not to be afraid to take these medications because I suppose they are so effective. I think another concern that's out there with people is that they're afraid they might become tolerant if they start to take the drug maybe earlier in their disease progression and then, you know, it becomes more severe, pain gets worse, and they're afraid that it won't work as well. Yeah, so sometimes patients will say to me they think they're, they're afraid their body will get used to it, and then if they really need it, it won't, it won't work. That doesn't happen in practice. So I think always when people have, and then maybe just talk a bit about cancer pain, if people have cancer pain, you start off with the simple, more straightforward drugs. You might then use a sort of a weak opioid like codeine, But if that's not controlling your pain, you should be on a strong opioid rather than saying I'm saving that for later. Because the idea is to try and help people live as well as possible with a serious illness rather than suffering at the moment. And if it's a case that your symptoms are getting worse or you're having more pain, we'll then have to review, do you need more of the opioid? Do you need another type of painkiller alongside the opioid? But that's not a reason not to start your strong opioid. We know that because the medications are uh, so strong that, you know, there might be some sedative effects, especially initially. And people want to be aware or as as alert as they can. When you start on a strong painkiller, you may feel more sleepy. Not everybody does. And sometimes if you're on a, if a dose of painkiller is increased, you may feel more sleepy. Again, not everybody does. Normally the sleepiness wears off. If it's a case that you're on a strong painkiller, like morphine, but you're feeling very sleepy or drowsy, again, talk to your doctor, talk to your nurse, your palliative care nurse, or if in hospital, the hospital team. And it may be that a different strong opioid would suit you. So morphine might make you feel very sleepy, but OxyContin might suit you. So it is that case of there's options of swapping around if they don't if the drug doesn't suit you. Yeah, and it could be a case, Regina. You know, it, it is a case that you know what suits you may not suit me, and vice versa. So you have to look at uh, that individual need. Yeah. I think the individual need is really important, and so, so people might be starting on this new drug when they're at home. So the GP might start them on say morphine when they're at home, and. Normally the GP will say, you know, check in with me again if you're feeling not, you know, they might say to give me a call in three or four days if you're not feeling any better, if you're feeling worse. You know, that way of just making sure that you're actually getting the benefit from the drug. But if you're getting side effects, then it's then to review that. So it is that thing of making sure that you know, as a patient, you know that if I start this drug I would expect if I should feel better in two days. If you're not feeling better in two two days, you might think I need to talk to my GP or your GP might say you might be sleepy for two or three days. But if you're a week later, you're feeling very sleepy. You need to then talk to your GP or to your palliative care nurse. So it is a thing of just not not feeling you have to suffer the side effects because people will always try and get the individual care plan for you to try and get the drug that suits you best. Uh, some of the common side effects um, like would would be nausea and constipation. Um, you know, we might not like talking about it, but something, you know, quite challenging to manage. So actually the pr- commonest side effect of morphine or opioids is constipation. That's the common yes. side effect, absolutely. And normally when people are started on, a, on an opioid, they're usually started on a laxative as well. 
because I say constipation is so common. Now, sometimes pe- people they may ha- they may not get that constipation, particularly at low doses, but it is an incredibly common side effect. And you're better to sort of be aware of this and to take laxatives rather than thinking this will fine and this will settle down because the constipation does not wear off. Sometimes people, when they start on opioids, they may have nausea. The nausea, nausea only happens about a third of people, and that tends to wear off. Constipation probably happens in 100% of people and doesn't wear off. So with the nausea, that might wear off the same way the sleepiness wears off, but the constipation doesn't. So people need to have laxatives. It's good to try and see about, like, you know, if you're thinking about having more fruit or high-fiber diet, but sometimes if you're living with a serious illness, you know, it might be very hard to adjust your diet. But so therefore it might so you do need to have laxatives and having laxatives is a sensible thing to do. Not it doesn't mean that you're you're having a bad diet. It means you're on a drug that causes constipation and you need a laxative. And are there any I suppose we you know, we might be more familiar, I suppose, with those common side effects, Regina, but are there others that people experience that we mightn't be as aware of? There are some, and it's there are way sometimes people who are on opioids might have very vivid dreams. Um, but so, and sometimes these vivid dreams are pleasant, but sometimes the vivid dreams can be unpleasant, like nightmares. Sometimes people have this thing where they feel that half awake, half asleep. You know, they're sort of dreaming a lot. Or they might even have the sort of feeling that they might see people or hear people who aren't there. If you're having disturbing dreams, if you're seeing or hearing people who aren't there and they're called hallucinations, that might mean that drug does not suit you. So you need to talk to your doctor or nurse. I find sometimes that patients, if they, if they notice this happening, they're nearly, they're nearly afraid to say it in case they're going mad. So I'd often say to patients... Are you having any vivid dreams or are you seeing people or talking to people who aren't there? And I say, sometimes people don't want to mention this in case they're going mad. And I say, it's not that you're going mad. It means the drug mightn't suit you and you need a different one. And I would often ask people those sort of questions. And sometimes then people have another symptom, which is it's hard to, it's hard, very hard to describe, but they feel this sort of feeling of jumping in their arms or legs. Um, and that can sometimes happen as a side effect of the drug. Again, if they notice that, they need to talk to a doctor or nurse. And interesting, this jumping thing can sometimes happen, starts to happen when you're asleep. So it might be that you're fine, but the person you're sleeping with is sort of thinking, what are they doing? Again, it might be a side effect of the drug and that it can be, maybe they might need a reduction in the drug or you might need a change in the drug. So you're better just saying, I'm having this problem, can you, can you help it out? That jumping thing is called myoclonus. But um, so doctors, you know, people, palliative care doctors and nurses tend to ask, are you having vivid dreams or nightmares or, or are you having any jumping in your arms or legs? Sometimes patients think, I'm, am, I, am I mad as the doctor asking these questions? But I say, these are side effects that okay. I know people don't necessarily volunteer. So therefore, you need to ask them. Yeah, and it's really good to know that because mm. I would not have known that before mm. we spoke. And it's probably something yet that people might not um, say, but it's just important, I suppose, to bring up anything that you're experiencing because there might be a better alternative. Sometimes people worry about uh, these medications affecting your breathing or affecting your heart. So I might just talk about affecting your breathing first. So 
Opioids are dangerous drugs. But if you use them properly, they're not dangerous. Because you could say paracetamol is a dangerous drug if you don't use it properly. So it's got to do with making sure that you're given the right dose and educating people about side effects. If, If you take too much opioids, or you have too much opioids in your system, that can affect your breathing and cause your breathing rate to go very slow. It does not, opioids do not make you breathless. But interestingly, opioids can help manage and treat the sensation of breathlessness. But I think a lot of doctors and nurses are aware that if you give too much opioids, it can slow your breathing. And that makes doctors and nurses sometimes a bit cautious. But if you're using the dose correctly, it won't slow your breathing. And as I said earlier, I think opioids can actually help the sensation of breathlessness. So sometimes then people are concerned that opioids will weaken your heart, that morphine will weaken the heart. Um, There's no evidence that morphine weakens the heart. And again, sometimes if people have very bad heart failure and very breathless from it, opioids can help the sensation of breathlessness. I think that some of these issues and some of these concerns are that people are afraid that opioids will cause death. Properly used, opioids will not cause death. So you might not know that your neighbour is on morphine while she's out going to work or that your, 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 um, the person two roads over is on OxyContin while he's sort of um, out coaching his kids with football. You know, you don't always know what people, that people are on opioids. Because the idea of using the opioids is to help people who are living with serious illness, who are living with pain, to manage and live their lives better. But I think that's why it's really important that, you know, that for the doctors and nurses prescribing it, that they are aware and they're careful about the side effects, that there's good education to the patient about the side effects, and if their problems are developing, that these things are reviewed. So I think we might end on the important message, which is that if you have any concerns to always bring it up with your doctor, nurse or other healthcare provider. Don't be afraid to have those conversations. As I mentioned earlier, this is Palliative Care Week, so keep an eye out for our other podcast episodes. And you can also find lots of other information and resources on palliative care at www.thepalliativehub.com. Thank you for listening to the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care podcast. You can find more information and additional podcast episodes at professionalpalliativehub.com.